HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for the 2023 conference featuring more than 90 in-person sessions and 25 virtual sessions on farming and food systems. Learn more at pasafarming.org conference. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're talking about water. Because after all, there is no food without water, right, people? So my guest today uh, is Edward Ferguson. He is the Chief Sustainability Officer for Blue Triton Brands. He holds not only an MBA, but an undergraduate education in chemical, environmental, and energy engineering from Washington University in St. Louis. And he has been in the beverage industry for his entire career. And so I think he's probably pretty well equipped to speak to these issues. And we all know that water is going to be the defining issue uh, of the rest of this, uh, probably the next 50 years. I think there will be water wars. I think there will be incredible competition for water throughout the United States if not other countries. So um, there's a lot to cover here. So Ed, let's start by telling people what is Blue Triton because you, your company recently acquired the entire water division of Nestle Foods. So does that make you guys the biggest consumer water brand in the company in the, in the United States? Yeah, so Blue, Blue Triton is a carve out formerly from Nestle Waters North America. The ah. organization itself isn't the entire business of Nestle Waters. They, they held on to some of their imported brands like uh, uh, San Pellegrino and Perrier. Um, those items are still held by Nestle, but we, we essentially carved out the business unit that had all the North American or U.S. and Canada uh, water. So items like Poland Springs, since you're in uh, Rhode Island and I'm out over right. here in Stamford, Connecticut, uh, as well as I like Ozarka down in Texas, Zephyr Hills in Florida. So a bunch of regional spring waters as well as uh, Pure Life um, bottled water, which is the, one of the national brands. So it, it's a carve out of basically the North American business unit from Nestle. Right. And all in all, we're, we're about one in five bottled waters in the U.S., a little less, kind of fluctuates throughout the year. Um, but yeah, we we were we've successfully executed the carve out, and we're uh, I like to say we're an organization in our infancy, just getting ready to start exiting the toddler phase and running. So right around the two year <laughs> mark right now, 
uh, completed that carve out and learning to be our own independent organization separate from the uh, Nestle Nestle over the, uh, <laughs> the Nestle ownership. The overlords. You can say that. You're corporate <laughs> overlords in Nestle. Um, so what does that mean, though, when you say you're going from the toddler phase to the off and running phase? Uh, so it, on the technical side of things, it, it means that we've disconnected our information systems from Nestle. So now we're standalone operating uh, where everything's separated. So uh, for those in the business world, the SAP or ERP systems are all separated and uh, we're, we're no longer dependent on any of the Nestle infrastructure that the business had been running on previously. Okay. Now we're kind of our own independent organization. So we can off and run because we were essentially a, a 6,600 person startup where we had to build a lot of it from the ground up because we were, had really? to basically decouple from all the Nestle infrastructure. So shared services, ERP, et cetera. So when I say we're exiting the toddler phase, it's kind of like a startup where you have to build up all your information systems, your supply chain connections, and, really? and everything else that makes the business run from kind of scratch. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, but I don't want to spend too much time on that because that's really another entire show, like how you get that kind of thing going. Let's talk about the fact that you are the chief sustainability officer. What does that mean? Can you define sustainability for us in the context of a bottled water company? Yeah, so uh, first of all, the, the definition of sustainability means a lot of different things to a lot of people. I like the right. UN's definition. Um, that defaults to meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Uh, that gives a little bit of a time perspective of it. It's sustainable today as well as into the future. And it's focused on the needs or specifically a lot of the resources that we have to live our lives. And water is one of those unifying resources that not only humans need for life, but plants, animals, ecosystems, uh, businesses, if you look at them from that sense, all rely Absolutely. on water as a life source. So from, from my standpoint, uh, sustainability for us is responsibly managing water. So it's natural regeneration cycle is robust enough to support those auxiliary needs of water, whether it's drinking or water for grass, irrigation for farms, et cetera, yeah. uh, making sure the systems are set up to regenerate water in enough quantities for today and tomorrow. Oh, and then the other piece of sustainability is is on the other resources used. So the vessel water is bottled in, the, the transportation used in the supply chain. So sustainability isn't necessarily just water. For us, it also expands deeper into our carbon footprint as well as our packaging and waste footprint. Um, and that builds into how much material you're using, where is it coming from, where is it going? Um, can you get materials that are fully regenerative the way water is? Uh, and that, that's kind of the, the, the ideal future we're looking at is all resources get to a point where they are renewable right. in the context of our daily lives. So something that doesn't happen on hundreds of years or even millennia on things like <clears throat> petroleum, but on the time frame that we see water regenerate, which you may see water evaporate and then come down and rain within a few days. So that's kind of the, the ideal future of sustainability is all the resources that are addressing the needs of people and planet are in a renewable cycle. Mm -hmm. You have to be a bit of a futurist, in other words, to be able to predict what will be what we define as sustainability now and whether that will remain a definition of sustainability in 50 years when the you know, impacts of climate change and all the other variables that affect water supply um, play out. Because, I mean, 
you have to have a very fertile imagination to really understand where that might go. I mean, I certainly can't. I see nothing but doom and gloom about water, to be honest with you. We waste it, we pollute <laughs> well, it, and uh, we don't seem to be very good at, at capturing it um, in the current levels at which it falls, like in places like in California. I know we're getting way off the topic here, but but you know where you have now these catastrophic rainfalls, the earth cannot absorb it because it is so drought, drought stricken uh, and uh, it overflows its banks, et cetera. Um, you know, all these, all these ways in which the way water is precipitating now is different from the way it used to even 10 years ago, right? I mean, don't you see? Yeah, as a, and it, will, it will continue to change. Right. So I, I agree with your comment on you need to be a futurist, uh, but it also needs to be combined with being pragmatic. So uh, I, I am personally, I lean towards a lot of the, the futurists and the way I think and talk. So if you need to reel me in through this conversation because I'm talking too far out, please feel free to do that. But yeah, the sustainability is <laughs> we'll a mixture of pragmatism. We'll just have you back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll just make you come back yeah. and talk more about it. Because I mean, honestly, this is literally, to me, this is sort of, you know, next to climate change, this is the defining issue of this era, is the fact that so many continents, not just areas, but continents are becoming water challenged. I mean, I was just in Argentina and because of climate change, first of all, they have extended drought periods, which they're used to, but they were dredging out. These rivers were totally, totally dry and they had bulldozers in there dredging out the riverbeds so that when, which from a hydraulic point of view seemed kind of crazy to me, but so that when the you know increased rainfall comes, it doesn't immediately flash flood across all of their roads and infrastructure, but stays in the river channel. I don't really see how that works, but you know, that's, I'm telling you, that is what they're doing. I watched that with my own little eyes. Um, let's, let's move on though for a minute and talk about the role of a large consumer bottled water company when it comes to managing resources and maintaining water quality. So like when you talk about, you know, the sustainability of water, of, of um, you know, making sure that, you're, that it's being recharged at the same rate that it's being consumed, wh what is the role that your company will play in that? How does that work? Yeah, so well, first of all, water itself is used for so many different applications. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll focus in on just specifically like drinking water because that's yeah. where we specialize. Um, right. but ultimately, when we look at the bottled water companies, one of their main items for maintaining water quality long term is, is protecting the quality itself. And, and that's the, the source of the water. So one thing that's unique about our business is about two thirds of our water is spring water. So that right. means it, it's sourced from uh, where the groundwater meets the surface water area. Mm -hmm. And it's not sourced from municipal systems. Uh, a lot of beverage companies, as well as us, for some of our, our water products, are sourcing from uh, municipal systems or other kind of piped water options. But when it comes to uh, spring water, you're sourcing from nature and you don't have the, the safeguards built in that the municipal systems do. So there's a lot of protecting the quality of the water by protecting the recharge areas, the surrounding areas, and then mm. setting up uh, reporting and monitoring systems to make sure if something comes basically upstream for groundwater. I know that's a weird term to use, but groundwater mm -hmm. also flows like first surface water. But if something's coming from upstream, you detect it and you put in a remediation plan with the local communities to solve whatever issue may be coming downstream. So protecting water quality from either um, like protecting environmental conservation efforts around the source or recharge area when groundwater or when surface water percolates into groundwater and also monitoring systems to detect when there are issues. And then the other piece of that is once you have the 
quality mechanisms in to both detect and manage, being transparent with it so others using the system uh, can also be informed of what's happening. Because uh, in the U.S., the USGS estimates about 40 million people use groundwater as their source water for their home uh, through right. wells and other items. So those 40 million people don't always have the same level of quality monitoring equipment that is afforded by like a large organization like ourselves. So transparency is hugely important because we're building out more information around groundwater that can Mm. also inform those in the areas of what else is going on in the water table that may affect them. So transparency and collaboration with communities to make sure that your quality systems are also bolstering their capabilities Mm. is extremely important. And then when you get to the, the further further out items, looking for, for synergies with other users of water in, in the area. So um, in a lot of areas that we work, there, there's other users of water, whether it's uh, irrigation for farmland or mining, um, et cetera. And working with those other industries as well as municipal systems um, to understand what are the shared needs between those using water and make sure we're coordinating where you bring unique capabilities. For us, we bring unique capabilities in groundwater monitoring, uh, management, and also environmental conservation. So looking for others that are doing similar things so we can coordinate in a more effective manner um, mm-hmm. is really important to basically build that long-term science-based, science-informed, and also ties into community beliefs and more of the moral and ethical angle of how water should be managed. So pulling all those stakeholders together in a local community to identify synergies of how the resource is managed so you can all work collectively on both ground and surface water because they're so connected. Mm-hmm. You know, that <clears throat> brings me to mind, brings to mind <clears throat> as an example, like I, I don't think any of the brands that you manage or that you guys own are based in the Midwest, but <clears throat> we know that in the Midwest, uh, the practice of uh spreading, say, hog waste on large <laughs> large acreage uh, to the point where the ground can't actually absorb it. And also all of, of course, the runoff from all the agriculture for soy and corn in, in a state like Iowa has brought uh, the, the state, I mean, I'm just, they're just one of many, but has brought this state to really a crisis in the quality of their water. Um, I'm sure you've read all about the Raccoon River and how you can't drink the water in Des Moines, and there have been multiple lawsuits about it. How does your company, is your company able to address uh, some of those point source contaminations um, in a way that can help municipalities solve for some of that, you know, some of those runoff issues, which, as you know, have contributed to the Gulf Zone, the dead zone in the Gulf, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's like, uh, to me, this is one of the biggest threats to people's drinking water. And somehow there doesn't seem to be any significant legislation to remediate. And I don't see anybody really stepping in and working with agricult- large agricultural companies to try to mitigate some of the impacts of their business. Like, do you guys have that, any kind of liaison, say, with like a slaughtering facility or, a, you know, ConAgra or, you know, something like that? You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, to be honest, mo- most of the times when we're looking at our water sources, um, well, take a step back. Some of our water sources are in the Midwest. So um, Ice Mountain up in the, the Michigan Great Lakes area oh, right, uh, of is, course. is one of our major That's brands a big in the Midwest. One, yeah. And then Ozarka mm-hmm. down in Texas, which is kind of not really Midwest. Texas kind of fits in its own little spectrum of whatever you call the region. It's just Texas 
partially right. Midwest, partially South. But yeah, so Ozarka and Ice Mountain are probably the closest to that region. Uh, okay. we, we don't have any water sources um, primarily like along like the Mississippi or the main agricultural basin you're talking about. Right. Um, but one, one of the items that uh, we look at is what are the source of those items? And then from our sources, like uh, for spring water, because it's the majority of our business, it's right. what is within the catchment or the recharge area for the, the site, for our, our spring sites themselves. And what we end up looking at is how can we either like limit or prevent um, basically through conservation in those areas, uh, potential source issues that could be industry, that could be agriculture, that could be snowmobilers that accidentally crash and spill like like gasoline or something in the ground that then percolates into groundwater. Like there's, there's so many contamination issues right. that um, we, through our conservation work, try to conserve or make the area less prone to development to limit those risks. In the right. larger systems that you need water locally for the municipal systems throughout the large agricultural basin you mentioned, we don't have as much of a, a footprint or involvement because we source our water so differently. Um, but frankly, some of the items that we do around conservation and recharge areas are, are imperative for not just spring water, but for anyone sourcing groundwater, um, huh. which is a large component of freshwater sourcing in the U.S. Um, right. And then the, the other piece, uh, this comes from my, my uh, previous days in an, another segment of beverage that had more agricultural focus, and I'm sure you've gone into this in others, but, but regenerative agriculture finding ways to build in ecosystem services that naturally manage nutrients that you don't need to be right. supplementing with as many pesticides or as many fertilizers or as many whatever additives could bring um, water quality issues on board. And mm -hmm. we start seeing those uptick. Organic spiked some of it, but ultimately I feel like the organic movement will start transitioning to a regenerative agriculture movement, which brings in animal husbandry, which brings in um, no-till technologies, cover crops, things that help limit um, additional nutrients or additives to large-scale farming so some of these source issues can go away. So right. that's that's where I think the, the future looks bright in terms of managing some of those issues is regenerative mm. ag. I know as a bottled water company, we don't get involved with that. But previously, I, I lived pretty heavily in that space. And I love right. seeing some of the technologies and farming capabilities coming out from that sector in terms of its impact on water quality across entire basins. Yeah, yeah, it would be nice to see big ag adopt more of that. Uh, yeah, I mean, at the moment, it's still a pretty small percentage of farmers are engaging in regenerative agriculture. It's it's got it's got to become a much a much broader uh, movement throughout the agricultural community, including the big players. Um, but it's uh, you know it's. It, Let's just move on. Actually, we could get bogged down in that forever. But one of the things that I that I also thought about is when the water supply, and this is a hydrology question, but when the water supply is low, do those? I mean, I, oh, I know what I wanted to talk about for a second was I looked at the water quality reports on your website, which were absolutely mm -hmm. fascinating, and I saw. It took me a long time to figure out how to read them, but I did it. Um, I saw that there are, you know, you break it down for not just organic and inorganic, but also like the amount of glyphosate, the amount of, you know, various herbicides, pesticides, fertilizers, that that was all very much, you know, measured. And of course, because you're spring water and you guys are clearly 
on the right side of the of the argument, um, you you know, was not applicable, but it was clearly part of the profile of any water to quality testing, uh, presumably mandated by the EPA. Um, that this that these are all things that you have to measure for, and uh, you know that that in and of itself was a real eye opener for me, just to see um, how many uh, man made or man uh, applied chemicals are making it into our groundwater. Uh, and thus into our water systems, but whether it's your personal well or your municipal system, I thought that was really an interesting thing. Very, uh, very complex reports. Yeah, and just to, to to comment on that real quickly, one one of the things you're getting at is when you're talking water quality, it is a hyper local item because each local environment, each watershed has different communities, different industry, and when you're looking at what to measure. Uh, it really takes a local view to understand what to be looking for. Right. Um, there, there's so many things that are measured in one region that are not measured in another because there's an industry present or there's a different type of like groundwater soil that may have like different components mm-hmm. uh, in it that may come into the water supply. So water is hyper-local. When you're talking about water quality, it's not ubiquitous everywhere. There are shared issues around sedimentation that you brought up with dredging uh, waterways, um, but there's a lot of other either like heavy metals or organics uh, yeah. or industrial byproducts. And you really do need to look through a lens of what's the local context to measure. And what we measure isn't necessarily what's just required by the EPA. Sometimes we're measuring above and beyond what mm-hmm. is required because the local context uh, requires you to do so because that situation requires you to go above and beyond what the EPA may look like. Because the EPA mm-hmm. casts a wide net. Um, whereas locally, sometimes that net needs to be deeper than what's mandated. Right, right. And that, I presume, is your job as the chief sustainability officer, right? Or one of your jobs? Well, partially. We actually have a natural resource team. We, so I, I oversee a lot of the, the system design to make sure that our feedback mechanisms are shared with communities, are brought in internally to make sure we're doing the right things. But we actually have a team. We call them the natural resource management team. Um, of scientists, uh, so hydrologists, geologists, engineers that actually sit in the regions and manage uh, the water sources. So they work with the communities through permitting activities. They work through the monitoring. So those reports that you saw were mostly generated by them and then also third parties that come in and check data or provide services. Mm -hmm. But we actually have a team of specialists that uh, specializes in, in water to do that. Uh, because that that's it's such a hyper local item. We need those people in the region to be learning about what specifically about the water needs to be monitored, looked at, uh, and also managed with other parties in the community. So that's a uh, I don't manage all of it. I'm not the expert on right. all of it. Uh, we have a team that actually does that, um, which was a, a fascinating item to learn from. I, I feel like every time I meet with them, I can leave the conversation. All right, I learned something new today. Um, every single time I meet with them. It's a great, great resource group for us. Very, very interesting. Does everybody do that? Do all of your competitors do that as well? Or are you guys, you know, is this is this across the board for the water bottled water industry that they maintain that kind of close um, connection to that, as you say, hyper-local water sourcing and, and identifying things that may be unique to one area versus another? It's not required, so not everyone does it. Um, I see. Being that the majority of our water is spring water, which is not overseen the same way as municipal sources, we need to do it because our our, our business needs to have an understanding of the quality of water, the availability mm-hmm. of water, et cetera, um, in areas that aren't managed by a large municipal. So we, because we have a lot of spring water, build it in 
because uh, we operate differently. Um, a lot of other organizations will work with third parties, like the Nature Conservancy, WWF, from an NGO standpoint, or organizations like Quack that are more industry governmental partnerships um, that manage some of that stuff. But uh, not everybody has internal teams doing it because a lot of times they rely on the the like public water supply to do a lot of the um, quality monitoring, availability analysis that, that we have to do internally because we don't rely as heavily on municipal systems. Right. Very interesting. Let's take a short break and uh, we'll come right back with Ed Ferguson from Blue Triton Brands. Stay tuned. We got a lot more to say. Cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower. Register now for PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2023 conference. Access more than 100 sessions on topics including environmental conservation, food justice, sustainable food and textile production, renewable energy, and much more. Featuring a not-to-be-missed lineup of speakers, including indigenous environmental scientist and author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Jessica Hernandez, Scottish farmer and co-producer of the podcast Landed, Cole Gordon, best-selling author of The Art of Fermentation, Sandor Katz, Co-owners of Heritage Seed Company True Love Seeds, Owen Taylor and Chris Bolden Newsom, and many more. There are two ways to attend, virtually or in person. PASA's virtual conference takes place January 17th through 19th. Join from anywhere. PASA's in-person conference is in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 11th and includes social and networking events plus an expansive trade show. Register now at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. Okay, so let's move on Mm -hmm. for a second. One thing I was curious about just to to build on that um, sort of water quality maintenance. When when water shortages become acute, say in Texas um, or the Southwest, does the chem do the chemical contamination rates increase? Do they become more concentrated? And then does that require like further remediation, additional monitoring? Like uh, tell me a little bit about how drought affects the quality of drinking water. Yeah, so for all of drinking water, I won't be able to speak to that. Um, no, I mean, but, but like in areas yeah, yeah, with acute ours, drought right now, for instance. Yeah. So some, some of the items um, that you, you've seen anecdotally is when, when water supply gets lower, uh, especially in shallow wells, you'll see more sedimentation or item, items coming up in people's water before um, either that shallow well um, ceases to work. Uh, th- that's one item that comes up. Uh, but for, from our standpoint of like how we manage our spring sites, uh, we monitor the level of all the the groundwater tables that are are near our spring sites to understand when we need to pull back operations um, from that area and source water from elsewhere. So we we have several redundant spring sites that for the large part aren't used or are used in drought conditions to basically Uh reduce any sort of water table impact uh, that may reduce water below basically a sustainable threshold. So from our standpoint, um, a lot of times in severe drought situations, we'll switch over our water supply to other regions or redundant springs um, informed by the data that we're pulling from uh, our groundwater, groundwater monitoring wells. So we, we don't want it to get to a point where there are any increased levels of like quality concerns. We basically pull sure. back on sourcing from those springs before it ever becomes an issue. So we have more of a proactive approach of 
Don't even let it become an issue. Switch up right. your sourcing plan um, to s- solve the issue. And uh, <laughs> and often uh, we don't we don't necessarily see those issues. It's something I would want to ask our um, NRM team or natural resource management team if they do see spikes in uh, water quality metrics. Uh, in drought areas, but I know we reduce sourcing to avert some of the larger issues that other communities that don't have the same level of monitoring experience. Right, right. Let's talk for a minute about long-term implications for water-challenged areas, like, um, like you know, infrastructure, like pipelines. Are we going to be building a pipeline from New England, or are we going to be buying water from Canada, or you know, getting it from I don't know Minnesota? Uh, and and bringing it down to Texas or into parts of California, like do you see that as a possibility? Um, and then what about desalination plants? Like how how are these water? You know, ultimately, I'm asking how are these water quali- water challenged areas um, where your company has uh, has some experience in working with NGO partners? Um, how how are you addressing uh, the the lack of of available water supplies or how should we as a nation even be thinking about addressing uh the infrastructure for getting water from one area to another oh wow that that's uh, that's the big thousand dollar question or million dollar question kind there. of yeah so when when we talk about the um the aspirational massive water pipelines to basically supply water from water flush areas with to water or drought stricken areas i I don't think that's a likely solution that will come up um ultimately because when you look at water systems there needs to be a component of resiliency built in and if you're creating like a point source of water aka a pipeline all of a sudden that is a another a single point of failure and when yeah. we look at system design, you don't want single point of failures. So there may be a future where there's like multiple water sources coming in from other regions, but like a massive, like I was reading an article about diverting water from the Mississippi and pushing it over the continental divide. That creates a system that's very fragile and weak. Um, I would think I, so. I, yeah, yeah. It would, it would be a little concerning to be living in an area that's dependent on uh a major majority of their water coming from one pipeline. That's a little terrifying yeah, to me. Absolutely. Um, but what, what I do see happening, if that's not going to be the um, future, is, is going to be around the ec- less export of water. Um, and when I say less export of water, I'm talking outside of a, a watershed. Um, yeah. Today, the consumptive use of water in the U.S. is about, it's about four, uh, <clears throat> sorry, 400 gallons of water per capita per day. Um, within the U.S., and that includes irrigation, some losses from uh, hydropower uh, generation, as well as just general public and industrial water supply. But there's so many uses of water. I think we'll be taking a look at the water footprint of what is within a region and seeing what's exporting water, how much is going out in fruits and vegetables, how much is going out in other products containing water, how much is evaporating from cooling uh, of power plants. And we're looking at export from the water system. I, I think that's where we'll start getting a lot smarter um, uh-huh. and starting to look at how do we regionalize water so less is leaving the system. Um, the other piece that I, I think will start encouraging uh, responsible water management, aka less export of water in drought stricken regions, is looking at how water is valued. Today, a lot of water, when you look at the, the, the price you pay as an industry or a homeowner, 
you're paying for often the delivery cost of that water, how much it takes to maintain the pumps and pipes and uh, sure. cleaning systems for it. You're not necessarily paying for the value of water itself. And that's created a, a tragedy of the common situation in a, in a lot of these areas where water is seen as free, but you pay for someone to bring it to you. So I think the future of water being free is going to change a bit um, in terms of like when you look at electricity, there's peak power charges in, in um, California today. So if you're running your AC in the peak of the day when industry homes and everybody's using electricity, you pay a little bit more for it. Mm -hmm. um, I think water will see a future like that. So people have a feedback mechanism on how much water they use and they don't just look at just the delivery cost because the delivery cost pretty much stays flat until you hit a catastrophic moment where there's not enough water or a major quality concern that drives additional investment to either get more water or solve the quality issue. So I think that's going to be a big change in our system that then encourages people to, to, to question um, people, both business owners and homeowners, to then be looking at do I need to be using water in the way that I'm doing it today? Like, does having Kentucky bluegrass in the desert make sense? Or should I have <laughs> right. prairie land? So, like, th there's items like that that people look at, and a lot of businesses have moved to zero scape. A lot of homeowners have moved to zero scape. But when you start getting a feedback mechanism on, like, the value of water beyond its delivery cost, all of a sudden people start reflecting on, do I need to use water to do X, Y, and Z? Or is there an alternative solution? And I think that's going to be a, a major piece of it. And then with that, obviously, if, if water mechanisms of how people um, and industry like pays for water or values water, that will drive some people to be like, ah, cost of living is too much, I'll migrate. So the, the whole concept of climate migration comes into play here, too. Mm. Of some people will be like, I, I don't want to be in a region that may have a flat, uh, fragile water system or there's changes to how water rights are allocated or, or whatnot. So I think that's going to be another piece that comes into play before there's any major Mississippi continental divide pipeline. Right. Um, that those are the items that I see really moving now. Um, we'll, we'll see how much traction they end up getting. Um, but I, I know being in the bottled water industry, there's a lot of scrutiny on the industry and a lot of interest, not just from bottled water producers, but how like even car manufacturers, like you, when you look at a car, you don't think about water, but they're interested in reducing their water footprint too. So the whole idea of uh, reducing export of water is gonna become huge for industry specific. Because a lot of people or a lot of industries have like large production facilities that then export elsewhere. And they're like, how do you export less water with every product you make? Right, right. I mean, I think, I mean, industry is sort of, I, when you talk about a 400 gallon per capita and you included industry, industrial use in that. But I mean, honestly, people can like get a low flush toilet and a low flow shower head and not water their lawns. But the real people who, I mean, the people who are really using the vast amount of our water resources are, in fact, industry. I mean, I'm thinking, I, you know, for instance, my particular uh, interest has been, for example, the meat industry, which uses enormous quantities of water, not just to grow the livestock, but the whole slaughtering, you know, butchering process is also intensely water driven. And um, I know that there's a company called Ceres, which I'm sure you're uh, familiar with. It's like, you know, series as in the goddess series that advises companies. They've done a lot of work around water use in industry. And the most companies in the agricultural sector have been very, very slow to come to the sort of, you know, conserve water party. Like it's been, they've done a number of surveys over the last 10 years that indicate that there's really, 
a relatively small number of, of major agricultural entities are, are really engaged with water uh, in, in the way that they use it and, and consume it. Um, and I, I feel like that's, you know, that is just a tip of an iceberg that we have not even started to unpack for, you know, for the rest of us. Cause it's, I mean, we are a profit driven country after all. So they want to keep making money. Right. Do you guys, you guys have a project called dig deep. And I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that because it does address uh, what we're talking about in terms of water challenge communities. Do you want to just tell people for a minute about that project? Yeah. So, so, so dig deep is the name of the organization. Uh, the project is called the yeah. Colonius uh, water access project. Um, right. But ultimately they, they're a leading uh, non-government nonprofit industry uh, right. partner that basically has put together a fantastic study of work that outlines water access issues um, within the, the U S Um Frankly, coming from uh, more of a, a global role previously, a lot of the water access conversation is focused internationally. And I think this year, last year, has really started shifting the conversation towards what's happening locally. And Dig Deep put out a study that basically analyzed the U.S. and determined what water access, where, where it was absent in the U.S. And they landed on a number of about 2.2 million people. Um, within right. the U.S., not having reliable access. So when we talk about right. having a resilient and redundant water systems, these people don't have like piped water available. They're either bringing it in from um, like trucks that they tanker in and putting into a holding tank on their in the, on their property, and then they'll use that water sparingly and then go fill up a truck again, or they're relying on products like bottled water. And frankly, for for those areas. We call those uh, areas as not having access because it's, again, uh, more or less a single point of failure. They don't have piped water to rely on first and then bottled water as a safety net. They're reliant on the safety net. So that, that's one of the items that uh, we were looking at. And it's like we don't, we don't want people to be buying our products because the primary way that they should be getting water isn't working. And frankly, in the U.S., there, there was a, a lack of focus on it. And Dig Deep has done a fantastic job putting out the research showing where the challenges are. So Appalachia, the colonious uh, areas of the country. And then, um, of course, there's Jackson and Flint. Oh, I mean, yeah, there's yeah. all yeah. these cities in the, in the farm belt where they can't drink their own water because it's so contaminated with farm runoff. I mean, I mean, it's 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 great for the water bottled water <laughs> industry, but it's, it's yeah. not really a long term solution for the rest of us. Right. So, yeah, I and, mean, it's how are you guys? involved in that like what is the role of blue triton been in that colonius project for example yeah so on that project what what it was is uh they called them donut hole communities whereas essentially the municipal water supply has piped utilities available all around the community and in the donut hole is this community that doesn't have piped water access and when push comes to shove of basically allocating resources to build the utilities out for these communities the the number of households benefiting from the work doesn't hit the cost threshold for the municipal system to invest in the water access for these people through pipes. So what we ended up doing was talking to Dig Deep on like, um, they've set up a, a very intelligent, very well-run structure of bringing in partners. So in our instance, we're a corporate partner where we donated to a project to help it hit that uh, return of investment threshold for the project to actually come to life. So we're not funding the entire project. We're, we're a portion of it, but we helped it hit that threshold where then the utility provider and the local government's like, yes, we will cover the rest. We will develop the rest. And then um, they, they have other corporate donors helping as well and other philanthropic uh, donation 
formations, but their whole model is get these projects to a threshold where the local communities, uh, where this project in the local community is competitive and will get funded to do so. So it's a huge collaboration between um, the nonprofit sector, um, philanthropic angel donations, corporate donations, and then dig deep kind of quarterbacking this um, with government entities to get the project across the finish line. So they, that's how they're, they're looking to do many, many more projects. So if I could get the word out of what they're doing, I would love for more people, more business owners uh, to see how they've structured it. Because I think it's one of the most intelligent ways to get these projects across the finish line, not right. just in one community, but for more and more of those 2.2 million people who are don't have piped water access. Yeah. I mean, this is the United States of America. I mean, really, it's just it's criminal. We unfortunately are running out of time, Ed. We didn't even get to talk about recycling and plastic bottle use and where the future of that is going to go. Um, but I do want you to have a chance to talk about for a minute about um, just, you know, words of wisdom on water quality and, and conservation. Like wh what do people really need to think about? Um, in terms of conserving and maintaining their water resources? Yeah, so one of the, in, in terms of water, water quality, availability, and access, um, the, the main areas that we look at is how you go through identifying the issues, developing the systems to address the issues, and then using that system to create uh, the solutions needed. And the first component of that whole work stream is identification of risks. If we see mm -hmm. issues in the water stream or if we have an idea of like, oh, something's going weird in this area, identifying those items. I mean, that's where topics of like PFAS arose was like foam in some stormwater yes. runoff. So identifying those risks and community feedback is imperative. And I know there's a lot of water champions out there of raising concern when they see a problem. Then the next step is developing the solutions for detecting and monitoring. So when you see a risk uh, and understand what it means to people and planet, then developing the detection system. So one of the, the big areas, again, going back to PFAS, is the detection systems have improved astronomically over the last few years to get to a point where we can monitor to a very granular level uh, across our water systems in the U.S., and that capability took years to build. And then once mm -hmm. you have the de detection systems and monitoring, then getting everybody to play by the same rules and follow the same <laughs> protocols to progressing it. So yeah, right. whether that's policy or industry community agreements, like that. Uh, so understanding risks, detecting and monitoring, and then evolving it to the shared set of rules that everybody plays by. And, and frankly, that same model applies to, to packaging. So identifying risks, detection and monitoring, so better information on where materials are lost, where they're ending up, and then setting up a shared set of rules. So whether that's uh, deposit return systems or extended producer responsibility, like that same pipeline applies to water and packaging. So however people in their professional or personal lives plug in to identifying risks, developing the detection and monitoring capabilities, and then setting up the community engagements and industry conversation to define a shared set of rules to play by, um, that's how I think a lot of this coordination ends up in a system that's resilient and helps us build towards a brighter future. So that that's, uh, if I had to leave words of wisdom, whether you're in business or an individual, those three components are imperative to developing a system that's not just a one-off, but something that can help protect resources today and into the future. I love that, Ed. That are words to live by, baby. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for joining me. We're going to talk again in the future uh, because I do want to talk about the work that your company and I hope other companies are doing around 
the plastic, you know, water bottle explosion. I mean, people are better, but not really. I mean, we certainly drank a lot of bottled water in Argentina, let me tell you. So um, thank you so much to my sponsors. Uh, thanks to my engineer. And thank you, Ed, very much for joining me today. This was really interesting. And we'll talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you, you Katie. Bye-bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.